This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for real life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, come and join us at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. Thank you and happy listening. My name is Nyana Vacha and I'm just going to introduce Vajrapriya. Not that you haven't met Vajrapriya, all of us have met Vajrapriya and you've probably had a sense of him already, even if you don't know him very well. Uh, but I said that I'd uh, chair the talk that he's about to give. So I just want to say a few words uh, about uh, Vajrapriya. Uh, Vajrapriya, his name means devotee uh, of the Vajra. I just asked him whether I could say it was lover of the Vajra, and uh, he said I could, uh, rather sheepishly. So lover of the Vajra <laughs> is uh, uh, Vajrapriya. Uh, Priya is this beautiful word meaning devotion, uh, love. Uh, it's a very sweet uh, Sanskrit word. Uh, and Vajra, of course, is uh, the thunderbolt of the diamond thunderbolt of reality. And uh, Vajrapriya, I think, is very well named. Um, the Vajra side of him is, I think, particularly obvious in his mental clarity, in his determination, in his clarity, and uh, uh, something about his um, no-nonsense attitude to the situation, to life. To, to whatever finds, he finds himself in. I mean, this weekend, he was asked to step in and uh, lead this weekend at, I don't know, 24 hours notice. Well, he only found out the day before yesterday. And uh, uh, it's not untypical of him just to say, yes, I'll do it, and then do it with uh, more than competence, with real care, concern, and flair. Uh, he's a very, very um, devoted man in the sense of devoted to whatever the situation is. For a long time, he was... Uh, the centre manager in Cambridge, in, in the Cambridge Centre. And uh, he worked largely on his own to keep that centre going. I'm sure lots of other people contributed, but Vajrapriya had a major, major role there uh, before he became Mitra convener uh, in, in, in Cambridge. And uh, the, other, the other aspect, the tenacity, uh, Vajrapriya won't let go of the truth. Um, we were recently studying last year with uh, Bhante Sangharakshita, and... Uh, uh, it's a bit daunting to study with the great man. Most of us were a bit sheepish about asking questions more than once. Do you know what I mean? And if you ask something and then Bante says, uh, you sort of say, okay. Uh, not Vajrapriya. Vajrapriya said, but what about? And what about again? And how does that square with this? And he, he had this tenacity which was delightful, courageous and delightful. Uh, so there's something of the Vajra. Uh, in all of those things. The, the prayer is in his care and concern, I think, for people, for the situation, for the Dharma, uh, for the truth. Uh, and there's real love in that. There's a real love in that. Despite what he was saying yesterday, he's a very, very uh, open-hearted, warm-hearted man. I've known him uh, for about 14, 15 years, and uh, I, I, I know that. So Vajra Priya is uh, very, very suitable uh, eminently suitable to talk about Metta, uh, and his title is Loving What Is. Thank you for that very generous introduction, Yanavacha. Last year I spent a fair bit of time in Spain, or actually this was 2006, a fair bit of time in Spain, in the mountains of Spain, at what is now called a Kashavana. My partner was opening up the retreat centre, that is the ordination retreat centre for women now. And I learned quite a bit about springs 
if you live in the mountains of Spain, you have to know quite a bit about springs. And when a spring isn't used, when it's not kept um, maintained, what happens is it, it sort of slowly turns down into a trickle. It, it gets clogged up with bits of moss and earth and the spring loses its life. And what you do when you open up a new spring is, is rather, rather sweet, really. You, um, it's a very gentle operation. You sort of, it's usually coming out of some fissure in the rock and you sort of reach in and you sort of find out where the sort of earth and bits of moss are and you very gradually remove these, these accretions of organic matter. It's, tempting to take a bulldozer to it. Sometimes people do this or take a jackhammer or something and sort of tear it back and get a nice new fresh wall for the, for the, earth, for the water to come through. But springs are mysterious things and sometimes they don't like this. Sometimes they decide to find a new route and they just go and end up somewhere completely different. They find an underground route somewhere completely different. Also, interestingly, you meant to do the opening up of a spring in the full moon. I love that. Not quite sure what to make of it, but that's what they say. So I think meta is a bit like this. I think allowing meta to flow is a little bit like this. It's a very organic, very delicate process. And I think that meta is like the water table. It's like a high water table. It's as if there is this infinite capacity of meta present. It's just trying to find a way through all these fissures in our being, trying to find a way to express itself. And all we need to do is find these roots and find out how to how to declog them a little bit. And we've all got these these roots. I'm sure we, we can all find the ways that meta expresses itself. Sometimes it expresses itself in a particular way or to particular people. And we just need to find and encourage these modes of expression. So, as I was saying last night, I think it's quite easy to look for metta in the wrong place or in the wrong way. I was speaking with Satchanama, and he said it's a little bit like um, like a panto. We've got a panto going in Cambridge tonight. And he said, it's behind you. We, we can sort of be desperately looking for metta somewhere, but actually it's right behind us. You might be looking for some huge torrent, some really strong feeling pouring out. I, I remember my first meditation, or FWO meditation teacher, a very wonderful man, and whenever he gave a talk on the Metta Bhavana, it was so inspiring. I, used to, I heard many of them, and I used to sit there completely enraptured, and he'd speak about Metta, not being this piddly-tiddly little emotion. It's this huge volcanic emotion that pours forth and you know i'm sitting there and be all inspired but it's great to hear that and at the same time it can also lead us to to looking for the wrong kind of thing that's no criticism of his teaching it definitely had the right effect but maybe that's not actually how we experience it so i want to look at ways that um, different people might experience metta and I want to look at ways of starting to clear these blockages. And one way I thought of, of looking at the different styles is by considering the five Buddha mandala. Um, some of you will be familiar with this, maybe others aren't. 
it's an illustration both of enlightened consciousness and how enlightened consciousness gets distorted in, by ego clinging into the samsaric forms that we know so well. So it's as if the, the totality of the Buddha, the totality of the Buddha mind, is so awesome and multifaceted that the Vajrayana decided to refract it into particular components. And over time it got refracted well, into at least five forms, the five forms I'll look at today. It's a very complex symbol, the five Buddha mandala, so I won't go into it in anything like any detail. So there's these five Buddhas, the five jinnas, that are each associated with a particular um, set of qualities that include both nirvanic experience and also samsaric experience. I'll try and explain this a little bit. So they each express the way that enlightened energy expresses itself and the way enlightened energy gets distorted into samsaric energy. And each of these Buddhas can be said to be the head of a particular family, a particular Buddha family, that in some way tie together a set of qualities. So we can be said to belong to some of these families more than others. It's a bit like a sort of Buddhist personality um, or psychological analysis, you know, a bit like a sort of Buddhist Myers-Briggs or something like this. And I'll skirt through them fairly quickly in terms of the type of love they may express. How would someone in this particular Buddha family express love? Maybe. This isn't traditional. The way I'm looking at this isn't traditional. I'm just trying to draw on what I know of the tradition to imagine how these families might express love. So we'll start off in the east of the mandala with Akshobhya. Akshobhya is the blue Buddha. The blue Buddha associated with the Vajra. He's the head of the Vajra family. He's said to have a particular wisdom, the mirror-like wisdom, objective, clear wisdom, very steady. He's got the touching the earth mudra, very imperturbable, steady figure. So maybe the way that Akshobhya, or that a member of the Akshobhya family would express wisdom, is a bit more like equanimity, very reflective, objective, this can sometimes be a bit infuriating. I think, especially for maybe more passionate people, maybe especially for women, it can be a bit infuriating, question mark. Other people can find it very um, invigorating, can really appreciate it. Can come across a bit cool, maybe even a bit bristly. It's worth remembering that the Vajra is not only a symbol of reality, it's also a symbol of compassion. So there's something compassionate in the, the very compassionate and the purity of the mirror-like wisdom. So members of the Vajra family are steady people. They're good people to have around in a fix. As I said yesterday, they may be the sort of person who you don't necessarily think of as a good friend until you find that in a particular fix your good friends have vanished and you're left with this steady Vajra friend. They can be a bit pokey, Maybe they call a spade a spade, be a bit brusque, and they may let you know if they think you're harming yourself. This is maybe something a bit like, like tough love or what used to be called fierce friendship. And of course, we can see the kind of dangers that this leads towards. Akshobhya is associated with the poison of hatred. So Vajra 
family, people tend to be given to ill will, irritation, criticism, judgment, hatred. These are the kinds of ways that the, um, the mirror-like wisdom gets distorted. And I'll be saying more about this. Let's move on to Ratnasambhava. The Buddha in the south means jewel-born. He is the head of the jewel family, the Ratna family. So the jewel, the, the wish-fulfilling jewel, in fact, symbol of generosity. Ratnasambhava is a sunny character, a yellow, bright yellow Buddha, associated with bounty and abundance. So Ratna people, jewel people, are, are sunny, generous, effusive people. They tend to delight in the people around them. They appreciate the world around them. They appreciate the people around them. Generous with praise and appreciation. They've got an eye for beauty. They tend to really encourage the people that, that they meet. It could all get a bit self-indulgent, maybe. It could get a little bit too much, a little bit too lovey-lovey. Who knows? Chagram Trumper talks of, of Ratna people as being fat, a sort of certain psychic fatness. And um, Ratna Sambhava is also associated with the poison of pride. So maybe there's a, a certain kind of pride associated with having all this to give. They can, they can give and they can give and they, the ego can appropriate that, that bounty. Moving on to the, um, the Padma family in the West. Um, Amitabha is the head of the Padma family. The red Buddha, the ruby red Buddha. His primary quality is love. So normally when we think of love, of metta, we think of Amitabha. He just seems to speak of love, of warmth, of strong emotion. So it's very easy to think of love, to think of metta in these terms, strong emotion, radiating. Padma people, not only very warm, very attractive, it's, it's really lovely to be around Padma people because you, you sort of, you just can get off on all this warmth that they're, they're giving you and you know that they want to be with you. This is the great thing about Padma people. You don't have to wonder about it as you do with a Vajra person. With a Padma person, you know they like you, and that's great. That's just great. But it can get a little bit engulfing or a little bit attached. Amitabha is associated with the poison of craving. So this is the, the flip side of, of um, this strong warmth, is it can get a bit attached. It can, the, the ego likes likes this and it wants and it wants more and it wants more and maybe Padma people get a little bit attached by what they want in this other person they're giving all this love but actually maybe they want quite a bit from them as well maybe when they don't get what they want then maybe things change so moving on to the north and we've got Amoga City the green Buddha of the north He's associated with the karma, or he's the head of the karma family, the action family. His emblem is the double vajra. He has the, the energy, the, the accomplishment. His name means the accomplishment that isn't obstructed. Somehow he knows exactly how to cleave through reality to bring about the most beneficial results for everything around him. So karma, family, people are very responsive. They see what's needed and they act. This is a way that love can express itself simply through action, simply through responding to the situation. 
I'll tell you a story of um, one new year that I spent with my partner. Um, we, at the time, we didn't see much of each other. And we had, I think, about five days down in the south coast over New Year. And this was much looked forward to. And on the drive down, she got illa and illa and illa. And then we arrived there and she just crashed out with flu. And she stayed that way for the full five days. And she felt terribly guilty about this, you know. Oh, wonderful holiday. Oh, what a shame. And actually, I loved it. In a funny sort of way, I loved it. Because I knew exactly what I needed to do. I just needed to look after her. I didn't have to decide where we're going to do today, where we're going to go today, and what we're going to do, and what we're going to eat, and where we're going to eat, and all these sorts of things that actually get me a little bit kind of anxious and edgy. All I had to do is make the food and look after her and read when she's asleep. It was very simple. I always personally feel happier when I know what I can do to help. I do some voluntary work at a hospice, and so I'm surrounded by all this suffering, by all this pain. People in these most appalling states of, of physical discomfort and psychological pain. Most appalling things that can happen to a body, I didn't realise. Um, and I can't really do very much, but I can make them a cup of tea, and I can sit and chat if that's what they want. So, this is the, um, the karma family. So, what's the sort of danger of the karma family? Well, maybe the danger of love expressed in this way is it can get a bit busy. It can get a bit too focused on doing things to people, sorting things out, making sure everything's just so, and not quite noticing the fact that these objects that you're tending to are actually people. It can get a little bit too... Um, superficially, objectively, or focused on people as objects rather than as living human beings. Also, Amoga City is associated with the uh, poison of envy. So people who are quite focused on accomplishments, focused on activity, focused on having effects out there in the world, they, sort of, the ego can appropriate that and start trying to size up how am I doing in relation to other people's achievements in the world. And then to the central Buddha, Varuchana. Varuchana is the white Buddha. And in a way, he, his qualities encompass all the other ones. He's the central defining figure of this particular uh, mandala. But he does have some particular characteristics. He's head of the Buddha family. So he's a central principle. He encompasses all the others. And so there's a sense of, of spaciousness, of all-encompassing. So Buddha family people tend to be very spacious people, very accommodating, unreactive. They, they sort of don't, somehow, that's a bit curious to me, they somehow don't feel they have to get into judgments about things. They don't have to come down on one side or the other. And because of this, they can have a kind of pacifying effect on the people around them. Even if people around them are, are caught up in strong feelings or, or strong um, conflicts, internal conflicts or external conflicts, the sort of accommodating spaciousness of a Buddha family person can somehow just hold all this together and pacify the situation. Maybe quite contemplative people. The tendency, the possible danger of the Buddha family people is maybe a bit more spaciness than spaciousness. Varochna is associated with the poison of ignorance. So 
uh, Buddha family people can maybe be a bit kind of vague. People like myself can call them flaky because they seem so kind of open to anything. They just don't seem to want to kind of make any kind of critical decision about anything. Um, I was was in the the taxi on on the way up here and I was talking to the the cab driver, a really interesting guy who's telling me all about his his spiritual experiences. And it was just great because there is this, um, this kind of sense within me that I wanted to, to decide whether he was a complete flake, whether he was lying, or whether it was all true. And he was telling me about you know, seeing people's past lives side by side, like a sort of movie screen alongside people, and seeing lights on people's bodies depending on where their illnesses are, and having spirits inhabiting him and going away again. And it's it's fantastic conversation. And and for once I could I could sit there and really enjoy him without thinking flake or loony or natural or whatever it is. <laughs> Managed to get a little bit of um Buddha family wisdom there maybe. <laughs> so that's the five the five families. So I've said that Metta is like this kind of high water table. So do you believe this? Do you believe that metta is there for the having, if you like, there for the expression? If there's nothing in the way, do we believe that it can just flow? I just want to say that I'm talking about it in this one particular way. There's many different ways of talking about metta. So, I mean, very often it's talked about as we sort of, we find the little seeds of metta and we water them with with awareness and let them grow in this way. That's another perfectly valid model. I'm, I'm not making any critique against that model. I just felt inspired to bring in a, a different model. The more models we've got, as long as they're vaguely correct, the better, I think. It's not a metaphysical statement, the sense that meta is there waiting to express itself. Maybe it's a bit poetic, but it does seem to me that when superficialities occasionally get wiped aside, then meta is there. I, I like a story that Stephen Covey tells about being on the train. This is the man who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He's on the train and next to him there's a guy with a, a few kids and the kids were just running riot up and down the train. And Stephen Covey was trying to be all good and saintly and being patient and so on. And eventually he just got so riled, he, he leaned over this guy and said, excuse me, sir, do you realise that your children are causing a lot of distress? And this guy said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry, um, my wife, their mother, just died and I don't know what to do with them. And it's like suddenly, you know, the whole mental state shifts and he just says, oh, I'm really sorry, is there anything I can do? Suddenly compassion, meta was just there, it's just available. But it just needed to, a little bit of understanding, just get rid of the superficialities of the situation. Do you really want people in the fourth stage of your metta bhavana to come to harm? Don't answer that. Um, <laughs> would it be easier to forgive them, to love them, if they were terminally ill? So I'll come back to this. So what I'm going to do now is speak a little bit more personally about what I feel blocks metta for me. Um, and I'm a, bit, I'm a bit more of a Vajra type. Um, so this isn't a, a public, it's not meant as a public confession. Um, I just want to give you something that may stimulate your own reflections. 
and hopefully some of the things I say will be true for you. No, maybe that's not the right way to say it, but maybe some of the things I say will be true for you and that will sort of ring bells. But I'm sure each of us have got our own particular patterns that we need to look at as well. So I'm going to talk about the ways that I work with my particular patterns. In the workshop, hopefully you'll have the chance to reflect on your own particular patterns and how you can work, share ways that you work. Reputation as an arch-critic of NVC, nonviolent communication, because I abhor the idea that everyone's self-declared needs are valid. <laughs> what if people are just deluded? What if they're neurotic? They need to be told. <laughs> they don't have a need for space, they're just lazy. So there's much that could be said about the wise use of the critical faculty. I'd love to give a three-hour talk on it. <laughs> about judging behaviours and not people and all this sort of thing. But I think the main thing to say is simply to notice, to notice the pain associated with judgment. That probably tells you if it's wise or unwise. Notice the quality of contraction or expansion. That'll tell you the kind of mental state that you're in. So this moves on to ways of working, ways of working with these patterns. The first way, I think, is simply mindfulness. It all boils down to mindfulness in the end, as someone said. So it's a, a well-known psychological fact, I think, that that which we can't accept in others is usually some aspect of what we have a difficult relationship with in ourselves. So this is where the, there's bits of the mirror missing. It's like weakness. And I'm just talking about myself now. Weakness, especially in men, is just not allowed. I'm sorry. Um, so if, if I meet someone who comes across as a bit kind of weak, then, ooh, I just don't want to go there, thank you very much, because you know there's some aspect in myself that just, well, you know, we're, we're talking sort of, psychological conditioning here, but it sort of feels like I don't allow myself to be weak. It's, it's not on. Someone once asked me if I'd ever lost control, and I said no. And they said, oh, oh, I'm sorry, which took me by surprise. <laughs> loud people. Loud people are taboo, I'm afraid, in my world. Um, talkative up to a point. But then beyond that point, no, not allowed, not permitted in my world. Um, people who are unafraid to blow their own trumpets, not allowed in my world. I, I, I'm quite happy to be praised, but I, I won't do it myself. You know, I, I find it very difficult to sort of say anything very sort of constructive and positive about myself. So I dislike it when I see it in others. I find it very humbling to see how instinctive these responses are. It's just so deeply conditioned. And I'll just go on to talking about the way that our, well, my responses to people seem to be immediate. You know, when I meet them for the first time, there's usually some kind of immediate response or reaction. So sort of still working along the lines of mindfulness, I want to tell you about Grafton Centre practice. Uh, now, the Grafton Centre is a local shopping centre in Cambridge, covered shopping centre. 
And something I like to do there is get a sandwich and sit down on a little bench. And you have hundreds of people per hour, probably thousands of people per hour, pouring past you. It's constantly coming. And it's a fantastic opportunity because they don't really notice me sitting there eating my, my sandwiches. But I can kind of clock them. Actually, what I tend to clock, if my mind, if my eyes are allowed to do their own thing, is all the pretty girls. So that, that's the first thing I clock. I just sort of track the pretty girls. And I just sort of sit there and noticing that. Oh, yeah, there's another one. Oh, yeah, there's another one. And notice the aversion either to ugly girls or to brutish guys. Um, there's a bit of fear that arises with brutish guys. It's not just simply aversion. And I notice how semi-invisible old people are to me. So what I try and do is bring attention to everyone, you know, roughly equally, and just notice this completely knee-jerk response um, that just seems to, to come, just flows over me as the people flow past me. And noticing the little stories and the little judgments that come as well. I find it quite sort of humiliating again when I can tune in to this sort of sotto voce little storyline that goes on you know, in my daily life. All the, all the judgments, all the stories that are going on in relationship to the people around me. So as a practice on this retreat, I encourage you just to notice that as far as you can. Just notice your reaction to people on the retreat. People you're drawn to, people you want to move away from. People in your study group are saying stupid things. Um, people who say fantastic things. Uh, just notice what's going on there. Is there any relationship between, um, or any connection between your relationship to yourself and what you notice in these people? So this is a basic level of psychological understanding I'm talking about, using mindfulness to bring attention to our responses to the people around us. And learning, we, we can learn from, um, from these responses about ourselves. We can take learnings about ourselves back out into these responses. Just to be clear, there's, um, there's nothing wrong with liking and disliking people forming initial impressions. This is all Vedana. This is all the um, results of past conditioning. It's not karmic in this sense. What is significant is being able to hang loose to them, to notice them, but not let it affect our behavior significantly. And for that, we need awareness. And this leads on to um, another technique, so to speak. The Buddhist technique par excellence for, for this practice is metabhavana, of course. Metabhavana is like a, a laboratory of awareness in which we can start noticing these blocks, start noticing the missing bits of the mirror, start noticing the distorting bits of the mirror. So practically speaking in meta practice, I encourage you not to be doing so much that you don't notice your reactions. Especially at the beginning of each stage, I, I recommend um, quite a lot of, of time just to be receptive, just to bring the person to mind as fully as possible and just sort of come into relationship with them and just notice what's going on. Be curious. Is, is there anything in the way here? Just try and get a feel for them. And is there some view of them? How am I feeling with this person? Is there something in the way here? 
And in the fifth stage, something I occasionally like to do with the universalizing when we're spreading out. Normally, well, I was taught to do it geographically, spread out geographically. Sometimes what I like to do is find different ways of spreading out. So like um, different stages of, say, everyone who's really very poor, people really suffering through extreme poverty, one stage. And then people who are poor but you know just about getting along and and people who are you know reasonably well off and then people who are filthy rich and see you know wh- wh- where does the matter flow easily where does it not flow easily or children and then young women young men middle-aged women middle-aged men old women old men let's see if there's any any blocks any areas where it's very free so it, the, the metta bhavana and, and awareness generally in our life, um, we can bring this semi-conscious operation of disliking, judging, liking, and allowing transformation to take its place. So I'll tell you a little experience of, um, of a karana appeal. Um, I imagine most of you know about karana appeals. They are a um, very strong practice where you, you go door knocking as part of a community for six weeks raising funds for the Karana Appeal, for, for the Karana Trust. And it's a very strong experience. I think most people find it a strong experience. And on the first appeal I did, I was sharing a room with someone, and we sort of didn't quite hit it off. We didn't really get on very well. You know, we were polite and all that. And I noticed that whenever I came in the room, he wouldn't make eye contact with me. And I, I started doing the, the smiley thing, just to try and get eye contact and all that. And, and after a while, he gave me this very strong feedback. It was a bit over the top, actually, but anyway. Very strong feedback. <laughs> um, uh, about how he experienced my hatred. And I thought, uh-oh, I've been rumbled here. I, th- I thought I'd been covering it over with my nice little smile. Um, but actually, I was getting quite irritated and annoyed with him. And he just said, look, I don't want anything to do with it. Thank you very much. And... I sort of found myself in this complete crucible where here I was sharing a room with this guy. I had quite a few weeks to go. He didn't want anything to do with me, thank you very much. I was feeling all this anger and ill will and what was I going to do? And I was sitting with this in extreme discomfort for a few days. And then something happened. I don't know what happened, I can't tell you. But I knew it had happened when one morning I was sitting in the kitchen and there's a guy doing the washing up. Now, the washing up. You know what washing up's like. I'm the only person in the world who knows how to wash up. Okay. And the same is probably true for you. I know how to wash up without too many suds, you know, just enough suds and, you know, rinse it all off properly and you know, not use too much hot water, energy efficiency and all that stuff. And he was standing there with this hot water pouring away, suds up like this, <laughs> and he was sort of throwing the crockery and plates in and, and you know, sort of give me a quick squidge. And, and I sort of looked at this and I realized, actually, I'm not annoyed. And when I realized that I wasn't annoyed, all this love came up. And I thought, this is the perfect expression of him. This fantastically exuberant, over-the-top way of washing up with suds and hot water and noise. And it's just the, the perfect expression of this fantastically exuberant person. And something changed from then. It's, it's hard to say what, but it was a... Um, a, a very significant moment for me. 
In fact, I think that, that appeal was the most transformative experience I've had in terms of working on hatred and harshness. So I think that judgment and criticism seems to be a deep pattern. Um, maybe it's fairly typical of, of a Vajra family person. It's a bit like the mind ticking over. The mind's not really sort of very aware of itself, just tends to sort of settle into these patterns. Another technique um, that I, I try to, to use to, to work with this is conscious appreciation of people, voiced rejoicing in people. So it's a very simple practice, just noticing the positive aspects of the people around me that I just take for granted if I'm, you know, again, part of the sort of ticking over the mind is just to completely take for granted everything vaguely sort of positive and um, praiseworthy that, that people around me do and focus in on the, the things that are wrong. So, um, yes, very simple practice of rejoicing, of appreciation and rejoicing, which is, of course, conduces of mudita. I'll, I'll be referring to how the Brahma Viharas relate to the, to the different techniques. So mudita, sympathetic joy. A little quote from someone called Mark Rutherford. It should be part of our private ritual to devote a quarter of an hour every day to the enumeration of the good qualities of our friends. When we are not active, we fall back idly upon defects, even of those whom we love most. So rejoicing in merit as a way of dealing with that. We could ask, what causes hatred? And that's quite a big question, isn't it? What causes hatred? You could have a very short answer, which is hatred is one of the poisons. It's been associated with samsara since beginningless time, full stop. You could have a very long answer to do with psychological conditioning factors, looking at different behaviours in, in the past and so on, how we've been conditioned, how we were raised. I, I was struck by quite a short Buddhist answer. In, um, it's, in a way, it's completely blindingly obvious, but it sort of hit me in the talk. I think it was by Vijaya Sri on hatred. She said very simply, all moments of hatred are conditioned by the moment of dukkha. It's as simple as that. All moments of hatred are conditioned by a moment of dukkha. The simplicity of that and the impersonality of that were quite shocking to me. Independence from dukkha arises hatred in this particular form. So the implication of this is very wide-ranging. If we can notice the initial dukkha, we don't have to follow through with hatred. Staying in the gap, as it's often said. So, another technique, still related to mindfulness, but slightly different. So I'm trying to get very interested in the various ways in which I miss dukkha and spin off into aversion of one kind or another. So typically, moment of dukkha arises in me and immediately there's a sense of blame. Who's responsible for this? This doesn't belong in my reality. Who put it there? So this brings about anger, judgmentalism, hatred, ill will, all the rest of it. And I get so much of this working at the Buddhist center. I, I sort of deeply care about the Buddhist center. I can care too much in, in my own particular way because I might just happen to hear a phone being answered in a way that I judge to be badly. Or I might hear the phone not being answered I might see that leaflets aren't out, or whatever it is. 
what happens is immediate. Who's not done that? Who's responsible for that? Cycling on my bicycle. It's extraordinary the amount this happens. Someone gets in my way. Would you believe it? Someone gets in my way. And I just noticed those little moments of, how dare you? How dare you pull across me? Even if it was there right away. Still, how dare you? It's not sort of voice, but it's just this little kind of, you got in my way. This is the egocentric mind that thinks everything should revolve around me. Everything should allow me to have a smooth ride through life. Or alternatively, witnessing someone else's pain. Um, If I'm with someone and they're telling me about something that's difficult in their life, different things can happen. I can go into my head and try and find the right words to fix them, say the right thing, and that blocks me from actually noticing. Here's a real human being who's suffering, tuning into them and just really being aware of them and connecting that way. Or something else that can happen when I witness someone else's pain. So this happened with a friend of mine. I was trying to show them how to use the computer. And they were doing something really stupid. And they were getting really kind of fed up with this and frustrated. And I was getting frustrated at their stupidity because it's obvious how you do this. And it, you know, I was kind of getting a bit frustrated, sort of trying to show them what to do. And they are getting more frustrated and... And I thought, oh God, they're suffering, aren't they? This is really painful for them. It's really painful for me. And it's so unnecessary. It's all so unnecessary. And just trying to kind of notice the ducket in the situation diffuses all that frustration and aversion. So the practice here that I use to try and get in here, just noticing ducket as ducket. And I'm trying to use... Um, a very simple technique of breathing, breathing it in. You, you might have heard of Tong Len. It's just simply a way of approaching dukkha for what it is by taking it in, just breathing it in and noticing it, not avoiding it. And breathing out, that's a sense of spaciousness, patience, accommodation. And this is the most fantastic practice because as soon as you do this, you're immediately connected with the rest of humanity because the whole of humanity the whole of sentient existence experiences dukkha. And if only I can rest with that, then there's immediate connection and compassion. This is the raw material of bodhicitta, the quicksilver elixir. So yes, this is a a royal road to compassion, to karana. Just another quick thing about dukkha. We don't need to be ashamed of dukkha. I, I think there's a sense that there's something wrong with feeling dukkha. I think this is why one reason why it's so easy to spin off into blame and all these other things, or, or self-blame. No, there's, there's the dukkha of self-blame. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with my practice. There's something wrong with the practice that's been given me. There's something wrong with, with me. I'm put together wrong or something. Now, this is what can happen if, if there's a, a sense of dukkha arising internally. We don't need to feel ashamed of it, and we don't have to put on a brave face It's part of being human. Kathleen Rain says, To make the imperfect perfect, it is enough to love it. So this leads me on to the title of my talk, Loving What Is. And it brings me to um, my name. This devotee of the Vajra is one that can be translated. A loose translation, I think, is Loving What Is. The Vajra is what is. It's just reality in its simple 
starkness. So Vajra Priya is simply loving what is. It's actually the title of a book by someone called Byron Katie, that I've not read, to be honest. So I want to tell you the story of how I got my name. It was given to me by Kulananda. And he explains to me, Vajra Priya, devotee of the Vajra. And he gave a little kind of addendum, a little kind of appendix, um, in a very kindly way, which was quite a teaching that's been with me ever since. He said, to know you must love. To know you must love. To know your friends, you must love your friends. To know reality, you must love reality. This has been an ongoing koan. I've been struggling with this. I don't want it to be true. Surely I can know just by, just by knowing. Meditate like mad. I don't have to do all this messy loving stuff. But the thing is, while there's not love, there's always going to be imbalance in the mind. There's always going to be bits of the mirror missing. It's the only thing that can approach what is fully. Without love, we're always going to be relating to others in terms of our view of the world or what we can get from them. What we really need is a willingness to really imaginatively occupy someone else's world. And that takes love. That is love, really. We can't explore the territory of humanity like a scientist because other people aren't objects. They are whole worlds unto themselves. Iris Murdoch says, Love is the difficult realisation that something other than oneself is real. So yes, this is the, the territory of compassion and maybe equanimity. Um, someone once said to me, Meta is what arises when you realise that being human isn't easy. I love this. Meta is what arises when you realise that being human isn't easy. That really is imbued with the flavour of karana, of compassion. So my final technique, if you like, isn't really a technique. It's all about perspective. I've called it the perspective of life and death. So ultimately, a lack of love is a failure of perspective. It's a failure of vision, or it's a diminished perspective, a diminished vision. To understand all is to forgive all. I mentioned Stephen Covey on the train. Once he understood, he not only forgave these noisy children, he felt great compassion. So this is, in a way, the flip side of my name. To understand all is to forgive all. To understand all is to love all. There's a reciprocal relationship between loving and understanding. So Banti says, One can only love people insofar as one understands them and be ready to love them more when one understands them better. And the perspective of life and death is the ultimate vantage point. Alika says, All negative mental states are a failure of perspective. So how do we take the perspective of life and death? Well, I was on a, a retreat with Prakash a while ago. He was on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And he did some very powerful rituals and reflections. And um, on one of the rituals, he killed us all, um, which comes to shock. Um, <laughs> and we thought it was a game, but he, he assured us it wasn't, actually. And he read us the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Bada Tudol. And he got us to reflect on being in the Bardo, in the Bardo, where we meet Yama Raja, the Lord of Death, 
who reflects back our life, he reflects back our karma. And he got us to imaginatively enter this world of having our life reflected back to us. And I don't know if he asked this question or if this was a question that arose for me, but the question was, have I loved well? It seemed to boil down to this question. If I was in this this position, it, it sort of raised this question, have I loved well? If I were to die now, will I have loved well? Am I loving well? So I just think this is a, a very fruitful reflection to take. The Dhammapada, one of my favourite quotes from the Dhammapada, others do not realise that we are all headed for death. People who do realise it will compose their quarrels. Others do not realise that we're all headed for death. Those who do realise it will compose their quarrels. If we can take this perspective from the ultimate vantage point of death, then all the superficialities of our life, all the particularities that seem to call on us so strongly, they can just recede a little bit and take their true place with the humanity, just simply relating to humanity as the most important perspective, the most important aspect of life. So with all these different techniques that I've mentioned, I just want to bring back bring it back to a very simple practice, a very simple practice that integrates with all of them. In any moment, especially when you notice something blocking meta, but in any moment, you can simply let the heart-mind be as spacious as possible. There's almost a kinesthetic um, flavour of metta, sort of felt bodily experience of metta that is expansive. You know, one has to do this to express it. It is expansive. It's almost physical. Open chest, it seems to reflect itself in an open chest. And opening the chest can help to encourage it. So that's something we can always come back to, a very simple practice. So I'd like to summarise. So I've said that metta is a little bit like a high water table. So in other words, there's this huge body of metta, huge, like a huge body of water. And our task is simply to unblock, gradually unblock the various channels, open up increasingly the channels that let it flow. I've said that it expresses itself differently for different people. And one way we can have a flavour of that is by looking at the five Buddha families. How might metta express itself for members of those different families? And some of the possible blockages as well. Incidentally, I, I don't want to give the impression that we all belong to a family, and that is us. It's like any psychological classification. It's much more fluid than that. There's aspects that we'll relate to more than others. Maybe we belong to a few families, so to speak. Then I look more personally at my own typical basic blockage, what I refer to as Akshobhya's broken mirror, the broken mirror which doesn't allow some aspects of reality to be reflected. It distorts other aspects of reality. And the way I work, through mindfulness, noticing judgments, views, reactions arising, noticing them kindly. We always develop metta with metta. Metta bhavana is a crucible, is a lab, a laboratory for doing this kind of work. I mentioned conscious appreciation and rejoicing, which encourages mudita, sympathetic joy, sympathetic appreciation. I talked about staying with dukkha, noticing dukkha, staying with dukkha trying not to let it spin off into aversion as far as possible, and loving what is, this loving life as it presents itself to me. This gives a, a sense of karana. 
And then finally, I mentioned the perspective of life and death, the ultimate perspective. What really matters in this perspective, which leads to a flavor of upeka, of um, equanimity. And in all of these, we can come back to a simple kinesthetic sense of opening of spaciousness. I'll just mention one more practice, which we'll be doing tonight, which is puja. The blockages, these habits, these patterns that can stifle metta, they're often bigger than us, um, or bigger than our conscious mind, if you like. It's like we can't necessarily work at them very directly in our conscious mind. So as part of this opening up into the bigger mind, we can call on something bigger than us, call on the Buddhas, if you like, call on the Bodhisattvas, however you want to think of them, call on higher aspects of ourselves, if you wish. So we open up to the larger reality. And when we do that, then it's as if our mind, our heart and mind, is metta. We become that high water table. This is a quality of heart and mind that we can bring to any experience. It's not something that we have to sort of generate consciously in an interaction. It just is us. Ultimately, it is us. We can just bring this quality to any experience and it flows completely freely depending on how it needs to flow. And when that happens, then we can really start being a people of loving kindness. We can really start bringing this quality of metta into a people of loving kindness. And we can really be said to be loving what is. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'd just like to say thank you very, very much, Patrapriya. I felt it was a gift of a talk, actually. There was this incisive clarity about the Dharma and an incisive clarity about how to apply it. Uh, very, very candid uh, talk about how Vajrapriya himself applies it. And I think what I, I felt was you had an experienced Dharma practitioner teaching from his experience, uh, exemplifying how to, how to practice. Uh, so it was a real gift of a talk, rich with uh, practical suggestions that were also challenging. Uh, I think there's much material in there to reflect upon uh, and uh, discuss in our groups and uh, try and uh, see what's relevant for us. So it was a real sort of gift of a talk of sharing uh, very generously his own experience as well as putting the Dharma into real clear perspective. So thank you very much, Vajrapriya. We hope you enjoyed the talk. Please come and help us keep this free at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. And thank you.